The Old Testament reading is from Isaiah 65. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them, or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning again, everyone. It's great to be here with you, and happy Advent season to you. There's a lot to look at up here. hope it's not too distracting. You can listen while you look, but um, every Sunday, as we did today, um, Christians recite the Lord's Prayer, and it comes out without a whole lot of thought. But we should consider our words, because what we're saying essentially is we're asking for a wholesale reorientation of our soul, of our life, of our world. We're asking each week, thy kingdom come. And we should think about this for a moment because it's relevant to Advent. In this we're saying we want God to come and to reign over us. That we want God to rule in our lives. That we no longer want to rely upon our own resources to manage our lives and our future. But let's be honest, if we, as we say this, if we're thinking about it at all, we're probably often thinking, thy kingdom come, but not today, maybe tomorrow, because we rather like directing things. We like maintaining a sense of control over our lives. We don't want to see this control. That's crazy. So maybe tomorrow thy kingdom come. But what Advent tells us is that God's kingdom is coming. Whether we want it to today or not, God's kingdom is coming and is expanding. And one day will fully envelop the world. And the quest of the Christian life is to live out of that Advent promise today. To live out of that future reality today. So we're spending the season of Advent asking, what would it be like to live such a life? What would it be like to inhabit such a world? What would it be like to live under the guidance of such a ruler? 
Well, it would be a little bit like what Preston read in Isaiah 65. So let's see what that is, and let's see if that's what we really want after all. But first, let's pray. God, would you give us, as we consider this text, a heart to know you, an open mind to follow the truth wherever it may lead? Would you guide us? Would you stir up your power and be born anew, as we prayed repeatedly a moment ago, be born anew in our lives? If we love the story of Christmas, if we believe it, or if we're dubious and you're a stranger to us, would you make yourself known through your word? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In recent years, we've seen a proliferation of dystopian fiction, movies, books, TV, The Children of Men, The Road, The Hunger Games, Divergent, The Walking Dead, and every form of media the, we're reading and learning dystopian tales and lessons. And this has always been a part of popular media, that is, apocalyptic themes, But it seems that our fascination with this idea of the end has flourished in a new way in the last few years, and I'm not sure why. Perhaps we like imagining these worlds that are far more terrible than our own. It's a form of cosmic sort of rubbernecking. At least my life is not like that. I'm bored, my job is terrible, but I don't have to live like that. Or maybe we find these nightmarish worlds quite plausible. And we need to get prepared. We need to think about how we would do in those situations. We want to be prepared, and most of us are convinced that the end of things is going to be quite dreadful. Well, thankfully, Isaiah paints for us a very different picture, and it's one that's meant to inspire hope and active waiting in the present day. Now, he painted this picture for people whose lives were stuck. They were stuck. Life had ceased to have promise. Their entire nation had been in exile, enslaved by a, former, by a foreign power. And a big part of Isaiah was written while they were still enslaved, and it was meant to inspire hope, to give them promise, to say that a day is coming when you will no longer be enslaved where you would no longer be exiled. They were captivated by a dream of freedom, and then their dreams came true. And sometimes the most dangerous thing about having a dream is getting it. It's achieving it, because as soon as we get it, as soon as we achieve it, as soon as that dream becomes reality, it begins to look ordinary and small, and we're on to something else. There was energy, there was enthusiasm, there was excitement in the middle chapters of Isaiah as they waited upon the Lord, as they waited for Him to move and to intervene. While they were still in exile, there was a yearning for this future that was different from their present. They wanted God to intervene on their behalf. They wanted justice. They wanted vindication. And then they got it. And Isaiah 65 is written after they were released and went home. Only some didn't. In fact, many didn't. Many stayed behind. And those who did return came back to find a temple that was in shambles and an economy that was a wreck. The chapter right before ours in chapter 64 says that Jerusalem had become a destruction. 
The people of Israel were free at last, but they were still afraid. Their dreams had come true, but they were more desperate than ever. Christmas can have that kind of feel, can't it? We start listening to Christmas music in October. We get excited, we plan, we shop, we eat, we drink, we overspend for presents, and then wrap them in anticipation of our loved one opening them and their lives being changed forever. And then the actual day comes, and it's over in an instant. This was always so disappointing to me as a child because I would stay up late at night until I just fell asleep, and then I would rush downstairs and open presents, and it's over. This was what I waited all year for. After that, we don't feel any different. We just have a big mess to clean up and a big credit card bill to pay off. Sorry to be a Grinch, but the anticipation is often much greater than the experience. And as a pastor, I hate to say that this is often true of Advent. And it's why we sing songs like we sung just a moment ago, that we're longing for something to happen that we're not quite experiencing yet. And each Advent, we experience this cycle of hope and then having our hopes dashed that everything is going to be better. We sing songs about the coming of the Lord and peace on earth, and yet in January we're still afraid and unfulfilled and bored. Isaiah 65 understands this cycle. Israel has gotten what they wanted for Christmas, and they're still not happy. Maybe their expectations were just too unrealistic, like Christmas, like Advent. We expect too much. And so, therefore, we're always disappointed, and we're bound to be let down. But Isaiah does not say this. In fact, he says just the opposite. He doesn't say that their expectations are too high, but that they're too low, that their hopes, that their dreams, that their future is too small. And he then lays out a mind-blowing picture of what they should be hoping for, what they should be looking to, a vision of a future that, if true, should be utterly captivating to our lives because it's grander, it's bigger, it's better, it's more satisfying than any future that any of us is currently pursuing and anticipating. I can see a community where young people aren't cut off and cut down in the prime of their life, where a mother won't have to fear that her child dies because of an easily preventable disease. He says, I can see neighborhoods, not with empty houses and boarded up windows, but filled with color and vibrancy and life, and the children are running out into the street without fear. And that all sounds pretty good, but we've heard that all before, haven't we? We hear at each election cycle from politicians that promise us that this will be the world that they create if they're elected. But Isaiah keeps going. He's got more to say. Because what he says is that the animosity that we see between natural enemies will cease to exist entirely. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat straw like the ox, and the dust will be the serpent's food. The metaphorical enemy of humanity will lie on the ground 
and eat dust. He says life will be extended far beyond what we can imagine. That work will continue, but we will be free of frustration in our jobs. And there will be a mutual, unending delight between God and His people. What he's describing here, friends, is a return to Eden, that everything that went wrong with the world will be fixed and made right and made new and even better. It's far outside our power to achieve this or for any politician to promise. But notice three times in the first two verses, what God says is, I will create. God has tasked Isaiah to say that He will create this, and He has staked His reputation upon it. What we could never achieve, God chooses to do for us. He says, see, I will create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. Now, there's a lot of unanswered questions here. Isaiah is painting with a pretty broad brush, and there are some things that are more literal and can be expected, and some things that are more metaphorical. We don't know, for instance, whether in heaven, in the new earth and new heavens, whether we'll remember our lives. Probably so, but I'm not sure that's what he is talking about here. It also doesn't seem that children will be born or people die at a hundred. The point is that God will create something new that will far exceed our hopes, that will far exceed our capacity to even imagine it. It will far exceed every hope that you have for your future. And notice it's not just animosity in the created world that comes to end, but verse 18, be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight, and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. In this promised world, friends, you will be an eternal delight to God, and that delight will be mutual and unending. That's the future that Isaiah wants you to dream about. That's the future that Isaiah, that God, wants you to be captivated about. And in every way possible, to bring elements of that into your world now. To dream about it in such a way that you have practical dreams for your world today. I think there may be another reason why dystopian stories captivate us. It's because they reassure us that humanity is strong and it's resilient. We can figure things out in even the worst of circumstances. But in this way, these modern dystopian, this modern apocalyptic is very different from the old. It's very different from Isaiah and Daniel and the book of Revelation and even the Gospels because these stories aren't optimistic about humanity's chances if left alone. These stories don't predict humanity triumphing But triumph instead belongs to God and only to God. Modern dystopian fiction remains optimistic 
It truly believes that we can find our way in the worst of circumstances, but the Bible says that we need rescue even in the best of circumstances. And it's those of us who accomplish our dreams, who get what we want for Christmas, who get what we want for life, who are most in danger of missing this reality. We need to be confronted with a vision of the future that is so shockingly good that it makes us despair of the best things of life here, that it makes our dreams look small by comparison. Because who are the people that responded to Jesus over and over? It was the ones who were down looking up, the ones who were fresh out of future. And who are the ones that can learn from them? Well, it's us. Because most of this most of you in this room have a future. Most of us have options. Most of us have leverage in this world. Most of us have high hopes for our future that most of the world doesn't. Richard Lisher is a professor at Duke, and he has a friend who is an oncologist, and he works with patients with the worst, most rare forms of cancer. And cancer, of course, is the great equalizer of us all. The affluent and the accomplished can't buy, can't think, can't earn their way out of that diagnosis. And this physician friend of him, his has a business card that he hands out, and on it it just has his name and his number and none of his degrees, none of his titles. It just says, there is hope. There is hope. And he hands this out. And Richard Lisher says that he thinks this is the reason why people keep coming back to this person over and over. There is hope. People with cancer, people who are down looking up, people who are fresh out of future are captivated by these three simple words. And these are the words of the gospel. These are the words that Isaiah gives us that there is hope. There's hope for our world. There's hope for your life. There's hope for your marriage. There's hope that things can be and will be different. Isaiah tells us there's hope because there is a God that is standing at the gate of hope, and He is inviting us to walk in. He is, in fact, begging us to walk in, to come into His kingdom, to come into the place where there is eternal hope. He is calling us toward a vision of a new world, of a peaceable kingdom. Wherever you are this morning, friends, there is hope for your world because you don't have to cure yourself. You don't have to rescue yourself. You don't have to change yourself. God says He will create. He will make change. He will make things new. He stakes His reputation upon it. In fact, He stakes the life of His Son upon it. And what we see born on Christmas is the beginning of a whole new world. Your expectations aren't too great. They're too small. Jesus comes to offer rescue from a dying world, from diminished hopes, from expectations that are too small, from lives that terminate, 
That's His hope. That's the present that He wants to give you, is a whole new world, a whole new way of looking at life, a reorientation of your soul. I encourage you, be courageous. Take hold of that. Walk through that gate. Seize God's vision for your life. And let us be a church. Let us be people who stand in those places where the world needs hope and invite that light to shine in. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you would guide us into those places. But first of all, we need light in our lives. We need our hearts healed. We need our lives put back together. There are so many struggles here. There is so much brokenness. There is so much hurt. There is so much pain. Father, let your light shine in. Let this new world captivate us and seize us and shake us out of the doldrums and the boredom that we experience. Father, help us to find newness through your resurrection, through your promises. And Father, then let us be people who walk that hope out into the world, who walk that hope into our neighbors' hearts, into our neighborhood, into our family, into our workplace. Lord, change us, captivate us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.